Trash Genre Cast, and this week's film is the Guy Ritchie Romp Snatch. Now, we will avoid spoilers, and we will not tell you how does the uh, the uh, rejected title of two Parisian young girls who fall in love and find the meaning of life. But we're, <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Boom. Wow. I wondered when that first joke was going to happen in the first 30 seconds. <laughs> I am a 12-year-old. And uh, so we're very, very glad to be in this room talking about the films that you will never discuss in a film studies course. But we need to introduce the disembodied bodies. To the right, sir, if you would, with the headset upon your head. I am Arthur Gordon. And if you show me how to control a wild friggin' gypsy, then I'll show you how to control an unhinged pig-feeding gangster. Excellent, excellent. Um, I will show you both those things later. Uh, to the extreme right, if you would, sir. My name is Dalton Stewart, and I remember, boys, my mother's preparing to play Exactly. Here, here. Uh, to my uh, closest right, if you would, ma'am. My name is Alexander Bohannon, and oh, nothing, Tommy. It's tip-top. It's just I'm not sure about the color. <laughs> very well done, very well done. My name is Dustin Sells, and I only have one thing to declare. Don't go to London. Oh, my gosh, that moment's priceless. Dennis Farina is made of all the gold. I love <laughs> him. I miss him so much. So is much. he dead? Yeah, he passed away uh, two or three years ago. No kidding. Yeah. It's too bad. Uh. Yeah, he, he was he was one of the great character actors. He really was. Dear listener, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, so there will be spoilers, but we will try to avoid the spoilers the first few moments uh, of our podcast in which we give our quick thumbs-up, thumbs-down review preceded by a synopsis from the voice of the cinema, and then spoilers, ahoy, you have been warned uh, for all that, and then we will discuss just exactly how many lesbian sex scenes are in this film, but... Moving right along. There are a set of identical twin girls, so... Oh, true facts. Moving right along, let's begin with that synopsis from the voice of the cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon, if you would, sir, please don't do it in a gypsy accent. Unscrupulous boxing promoters, violent bookmakers, a Russian gangster, incompetent amateur robbers, and supposedly Jewish jewelers fight to track down a priceless stolen diamond. Supposedly Jewish. <laughs> That's right. It's not in Paris. It's in London, and it's about gangsters, dear listener. Well, we're going to do our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. So I'll begin with you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Let's see. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Does this film work, and why or why not? This film is so much fun, uh, and it's filled with so much energy, uh, just like all of Guy Ritchie's films. Now, whether or not it's really anything of actual substance is a question for a later on today, and as I'm sure we might get into in theory. This is one of those films that we watch and then go, what the hell are we going to talk about? Because there's not much to talk about. Uh, and I'd say that's 
honestly probably quite true for most of Guy Ritchie's films. Um, they're a whole lot of fun, but really not of made of much substance. And I don't I don't know if, what you guys think about that, but that's kind of where I'm at with it. Um, I hadn't seen this film in a good number of years, and um, having become much more critical, uh, having seen a lot more movies since the last time I seen Snatch, I'm much more critical of it now. But that said, it is still really so much fun. There are a lot of contemporaries of Guy Ritchie, be they uh, British filmmakers, American filmmakers, or uh, non-English speaking filmmakers, um, that are also very much into this kind of hyperkinetic, frenetic style of filmmaking. Um, and I feel like a lot of them, the the first one that really comes to mind is um, Robert Rodriguez. Um, some of his films are also very frenetic and hyperkinetic. Uh, and it kind of wears on you. I'm thinking specifically of the film Machete, which is very much a very frenetic, very energetic film. And honestly, you just get bored with it and you get tired of it. And I think Guy Ritchie's real strength is that he can carry this pace throughout an entire film. And I think that's something that's very difficult to do. And when you're ha- when you're making a film that is this high energy, this frenetic, uh, this kinetic, it it's very easy for that to wear on the audience and frankly for them to become bored with it. Uh, and I think that's one of the strengths that Guy Ritchie presents is it never wears on you. It is fun throughout. Um, it does kind of pull you along. I mean, I, I watched this quite late the other night, and I was pretty tired when I started it. Um, and was just pulled throughout. I mean, I, I was ready to go and was in for it the entire way, despite being really rather tired when I started. And I think that does speak to the the quality uh, of the filmmaking, that that high energy is so much fun and does carry you throughout. Um, so while it's not a perfect film um, by any stretch of the imagination, anybody that tells you this is one of their favorite films is... I'm, an idiot would be a strong word, but somebody that's not seen very many movies um, <laughs> okay. and should probably watch more film. For me, at the end of the day, I would give it seven and a half fingers uh, out of a possible 13. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what say you um, with your thumbs up, thumbs down review? Well, I like this film. I think I was one of the, I think there were a couple of us that suggested it for the roster. Um, coming to think of analysis for it and thinking of it in a more critical fashion, as Dalton already pointed out, is a, is a, a difficult, more daunting challenge. Easier said than done. Yeah. Easier said than done is definitely a turn of phrase. Uh, the pacing always kept me engaged when watching this movie. I have a, I have a tendency, it, I, I, I don't know if it's, you know, the emergence of smartphones or just this instantaneous communication. But I find myself drifting in a lot of movies. If I'm not in a theater that, uh, if I just put it on a movie on Netflix, I'll space out unless I'm too like 110% engaged. Um, lately we've been doing really well with not picking those kind of movies where I drift out of. And this is like the, like the upper echelons of you can't let go of, this movie, like you're totally invested because the pace is so frantic. It's certainly one of those films. If you do look away for a second, you're like, "Oh shit!" I, now I got to back it up because yeah, I've missed, and like, I missed like I've three missed jokes so much. and yeah. some plot. Yeah, and gosh, the acting is brilliant. The com- comedic timing is fun. Um, it's really interesting seeing. I love seeing Brad Pitt in roles like this. It's it's just a great movie. It's a fun movie. Maybe not a lot of things to read beyond the text that's flashing rapidly in front of you. We'll go into that in our analysis and I'll see what the rest of my co's have to say about that. Um, but overall it's a solidly fun romp. Like I always enjoy myself immensely when I watch this movie. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander. Uh, oh, I thought you, you want to give her a ranking. You pa- oh, I'm sorry. I, I pause like to breathe. That's cool. Huh? 
All right. Just another man trying to talk over a woman. Microaggressions. Oh, my God. (laughs) I will give this 8 out of 12 uh, replica tiny pistols. Thank you very much, Miss Alexandra Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you in terms of thumbs up, thumbs down review? I agree with Alex. This movie is a fun romp. Uh, however, I have cooled a bit on it uh, during the rewatches. I think Dalton has. I think it's a film that assaults your senses on the first outing uh, with the editing and the language and the music and the characters. And so I think watching it again kind of allows you to absorb it better and see what's really happening uh, and takes some of the mystique out of it and loses some of that appeal. I think Guy Ritchie is one of the best action directors around. I think he's just solid at telling a story with fight scenes. Uh, the fight scenes here are, are done wonderfully. I love the boxing matches that we see, especially the final one. Uh, there's some great photography here. I love that gritty, raw feel that's going on. Uh, the editing is top-notch. Alex already kind of commented on with the uh, the airplane sequences, uh, and that foreshadows one of my favorite series, which we talk about quite a bit on this show uh, from Britain. Uh, for me, especially the first time seeing it, Brad Pitt just steals this movie. Uh, he's surrounded by a great ensemble who help, but uh, he just... He, he, he does a really good job. And I think some recognition goes to Vinnie Jones here as well. Uh, Dalton mentioned that off, off air, but Vinnie he's, Jones is he's fun. So, he's so great. I wish he got more work because he hasn't really done anything substantial in quite a while. I'll say like the token heavy. Like yeah. A lot of times he's just the token heavy. He's there to yeah. beat up people. He, he had a, a couple episodes stint on Arrow this season that was kind of fun, but... Yeah, I wish he had more to do because he's very funny. Uh, and considering he, you know, started his career as a professional uh, football player, that's English football, not American football, obviously. Um, it's shocking to me how good he is at being an actor. It really is. Uh, overall, I think it is a solid ride. I think it's paced very well, as everybody's already said. I think it plays out in a great manner. I love the ending, and I love Mickey by the end. I love the way his story plays out. Uh, I would give it 24.8 dogs who have swallowed squeak toys and can't shut up out of 30. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Um, I well, what I say about the British version of Ocean's Eleven is that uh, it's 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 really a lot of fun. It, it's a fun little caper movie, and it's definitely enjoyable. The editing does uh, add to that, and the performances. It, it is definitely leans heavily on its ensemble character um, as a film. And so, I again, I want to echo much of what was said by my dear co-hosts here. And so, that's all I think quite superior. It it is really really fun. It is. Um, somewhat uh, murky plot-wise. You really do have to pay attention. But um, it's, it's again, this is my first watch ever. No and, kidding. Yeah, no, um, not at all. And uh, I just, um, I'm flabbergasted that I've seen a movie that you hadn't, like, a couple <laughs> times. <laughs> um, I graded a paper on this film last semester, and uh, so I've been wanting to get to it for some time. So I'm glad it was selected and suggested uh, for that purpose and so it's definitely uh, very much fun. I give it probably uh, four and three-quarter burning caravans out of a possible six. You made it burning. That's really sad. <laughs> but joke's on you. But we'll talk more about that a little bit later. Dear listeners, spoilers ahoy. We now move into what we're here to do, which is to bring analysis to the film. What analysis bring you, Mr. Arthur Gordon? Uh, what I would like to look at through this movie is one of its stars, and that is the editing uh, Guy Ritchie and his editor, John Harris, who's worked several times with Ritchie and Matthew Vaughn and Danny Boyle and some other British uh, directors, uh, they do a great job slicing this film together. Uh, I think it's one of the, the best aspects of the movie. And now I'll be piggybacking a little bit off my analysis last week uh, where I spoke about Christian Metz and the grammar of film. What I specifically want to focus on is what Metz deemed parallel montage and bracket syntagma. Uh, to remind the dear listener, parallel montage is a series of shots edited together with no precise relationship assigned by the film, 
This may take on a symbolic aspect and show scenes portraying opposites. Metz mentions juxtapositioning the rich with the poor to represent an economic conflict. Uh, the bracket syntagma is a brief series of scenes that represent occurrences that the film uh, presents as a theme or topic. Uh, Metz presents the theme of modern love, which would be expounded on with shots of people kissing, holding hands, getting married, and so forth. Now, what we're primarily dealing with here is montage editing, and we can't talk about montage editing without talking about the father of montage, Sergei Eisenstein. Uh, best known for his film Battleship Potemkin, Eisenstein wrote several essays and articles, books, uh, discussing the use of montage editing and its power as a dialectical tool. Now, delving into Eisenstein's theories, there are three forms of montage I want to focus on. Rhythmic, tonal, and intellectual. Uh, rhythmic montage falls hand-in-hand with com- continuity editing. It keeps the flow of the film, allows us to follow the narrative, and helps the film make sense. Tonal montage relies on the emotional appeal of the shot to develop understanding within the audience. For example, a sleeping baby would evoke a sense of calmness or peace. Clouds gathering and a sky darkening may allude to turmoil within the plot. And finally, intellectual montage is equivalent to what Metz calls the parallel montage as it requires the images of opposites to combine to show a symbolic meaning. Now, there are two sequences within the film that I specifically want to focus on and how Richie and Harris work to subvert some of the ideas of traditional montage editing. Uh, the first sequence we will look at is an example of the intellectual or parallel montage, and we will call this sequence the rabbit properly shag. Ha ha, I knew it. Now, this sequence begins with... Wait, two- like proper fucked? Correct. <laughs> now, quick, before the Germans get here. <laughs> uh, now, this sequence begins with two scenes being intercut. The first, Turkish and Tommy turn up to try and convince Mickey uh, to fight a second time after he failed to take a dive in a fight. While here, Mickey makes a bet with Turkish about whether a rabbit could escape the dogs in the field. The dogs are fast, they're strong, they work in tandem. Uh, the hare is scared on edge, but fast. This is juxtaposed with bookie crime lord Bricktop and his hoods led by Errol uh, going after the guys who tried to rob his bookie agency. The hoods go after a getaway driver, Tyrone. Uh, now, the obvious association here is that Tyrone is the rabbit and the hoods are the dogs. And this is exactly the picture that is being painted back and forth throughout this montage sequence. However, Tyrone is polar opposite of the hare in many ways. Tyrone is a beast, he is dim-witted, he is slow, yet like the rabbit, he is frightened and on edge. The two scenes cut back and forth, revealing a chase. The dogs are in hot pursuit of the rabbit nipping at his heels, just as the gangsters have tracked down Tyrone and sick their own dogs on him. Similarly, they nip at his heels. And this is where Richie subverts the general consciousness. In seeing Tyrone taken down, we expect that the rabbit will succumb to the dogs and will be screwed in the least formal of senses. Yet the rabbit avoids capture and is able to outrun the dogs and proves his willingness and proves his wiliness and ultimately becomes a symbol of Brick Top's own guile, as he has completely outsmarted and outworked the local thugs who have tried to get one over on him. Much like Mickey with Turkish and Tommy, uh, Richie has conned us by leading us one direction and then pulling the carpet from beneath us, thus subverting what we expect and circumventing the traditional narrative of intellectual or parallel montage editing. The second sequence I want to discuss is the sequence we call carpooling. Uh, now, within the film, there are about five different character groups which are, we are following, most of them going after this 84-carat diamond, uh, which should get a nomination for Best MacGuffin. Uh, moving towards the climax of the storyline, the three sets of gangsters uh, unknowingly intersect on the street. This is Vin and Saul, Avi and Tony, mm-hmm. and Tommy and Turkish. Turkish. Yep. Now, playing with the rhythmic montage that Eisenstein outlines, Richie opts not to move ahead with continuity editing and in doing so pays great homage to something like Pulp Fiction. Uh, he opts to show us the setup and follow-through of three different anecdotes told out of order. The first shows Vin and Saul and Tyrone, who, while arguing and driving, uh, hit a man with a bag over his head. 
The second narrative line shows Tommy and Turkish conversing as they drive around the road. Uh, at this point, one of the men throws his beverage out of the window, and a few moments later, we hear a car crashing. And then next, uh, we see Abby and Tony searching for the men who have the diamond. While driving, a liquid beverage lands on their windshield and causes them to wreck, recreating the crashing sound we heard previously. And this is what Dalton was alluding to in his uh, review of the jokes being set up and then followed through at a later point. This is the second line of thought that plays out. The third shows Vin and Saul uh, hitting Boris the blade with their cars. Abby watches on from a stupor from the wreckage of his own car. Now we see the exact same moment in time through three different lenses. All of this works to a couple of ends. The first is that, once again, Richie is able to subvert classical expectations and narrative and show us something different to tell his story. He, hops, uh, he opts not to go with continuity editing to make this a fluid sequence, and in doing so, the editing of the sequence becomes symbolic or representative of the story on the whole. The whole movie is convoluted, and there are many storylines taking place, and much attention must be paid to keep up with what is going on in the narrative. Similarly, this sequence comes off in a very contrived and convoluted manner. Richie forsakes an editing process that has been around since the early 1900s in order to seemingly keep us on our toes and shake things up. It fits with his frenetic style and adds a flair that draws the viewer in. Richie isn't a master filmmaker. His, he is rough, gritty, and imaginative, and oftentimes that goes farther than some more refined or stylistic directors. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what say you in terms of analysis? In my analysis, I would like to examine some of the treatments of racial and ethnic groups in this film. Um, from the get-go, we hear, I swear, like every other line is, I hate Pikes, um, usually said in a thick thick uh, British Cockney <laughs> drawl. Um, and I found that really interesting because in this in this film there are some clear ethnic group and ethnic and racial group winners and there are some clear ethnic and racial group losers and you know spoiler not spoiler but as we all know from society it's a sad fact that the white guy usually wins and that's how the film ends the white guy um blunders to a win at the very end there but there is some whereas the um the at British Africans bumbled into a lose. Right. Um, for Through no fault of their own, they thought they were getting some under-the-table, decently-paying employment from another white guy, but a different ethnicity. Um, and that didn't pay out. In fact, it probably... It looks like they're going to meet a very sticky end with the... Uh, was it the police that got them? Yeah, because yeah. they, they're like, there's a body. In Why your is there a one-armed man in your, your trunk boot. with yeah. a tea cozy on his head? Right, exactly. Uh, a question for the ages, uh, if you have no idea what's going on. So besides those really clear winners, because you have, obviously, you're going to know the white guy is probably going to get the sweetest end of the deal. Um, and, you know, the 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 African-descended individual is going to kind of receive the, the crappy end of the deal. Um, it's even though they're both engaging in criminal behavior, because they both are, um, to varying degrees, it is interesting to examine the three other racial and ethnic groups discussed. So you have your Russians, you have um, Jewish or Jewish-identifying individuals. It is interesting to examine the Pikes because they are of a they are white, but of a lower social class. Ethnic whites, yeah. Ethnic whites, yes. Um, they are of a lower social socioeconomic class than the others so obviously they're just kind of treated like garbage but yet they still you know they still win the day and 
they still get what they want, although, I mean, sacrificing your mom along the way, which is a very unfortunate situation. Uh, but they end up, you know, skirting the police and getting the stuff they need. Um, and then you have your Jewish identifying individuals. You have the Hasidic Jews at the very beginning that rob the, uh, was it the pawn shop or? It was a diamond wholesale. It was the diamond wholesale. Um, so you have those individuals as well um, who try, they also get away with their various crimes, although there are shenanigans along the way. What, what, and then you have your Russian individual who, I mean, he really gets a beating. It, it would be an interesting commentary to see, uh, ex- like... Excuse me, Alex. He's Uzbekistani. Oh, I apologize. <laughs> um, it is an interesting... They do men- reference the hammer and the sickle in uh, talking about Boris. Mm-hmm. And it is an interesting little brief note of commentary that this film is so driven by capitalism with this diamond and all of the, the stuff. You have this one individual who comes from, like, a socialist um more a stalinist background the antithesis of capitalism and he's the one that kind of gets uh shat on so the the kind of the too long didn't read of my analysis is basically every i would say most of the people that have to be very blunt a white caucasian skin tone you have your people that identify as pikey jewish just straight Anglo, Uzbekistani slash Russian, they all don't get the same amount of severity of punishment as the three African-American individuals in this yeah. film. That pretty much everyone kind of gets away, not only perhaps benefiting like the straight Anglo person, not straight in the sexuality way, but the um, Anglo-identifying people get away just with that and they get the diamond as well. Or, you know, you have the Uzbekistani who you know gets shot and beat up a bunch of times, but he doesn't. He doesn't die. Boris, does he? Yeah, no, Boris dies. Okay, yeah. T- Bullet Tooth Tony finally is able to kill him. Yeah. So it, it's just a very interesting criticism to see that these characters can be so. Um, there's definitely a difference in the way that their character arcs are treated, mm-hmm. and it, it couldn't have killed them to have one of the good guys be a, a black individual. And well, again, they're... it's not that they're bad. <laughs> yeah, you, they couldn't have it couldn't have killed Guy Ritchie to let them get away when you know they're no more at fault for anything that happens than really anybody else. Right. I mean, I, I can understand that if these three individuals, like. There is a process in in casting known as colorblind casting, and I've I've seen films and watch plays that ha- deal with colorblind casting, where you know two people that are supposed to be brothers, one is cat, one is every obviously like Caucasian, another um, one of my friends was cast in a play alongside his supposed brother in the play, and who is um, a Pakistani descent. And but they're brothers, and that's in the film, in the film, in the play, and it's totally nobody thinks about it. But I don't. I just question the reason why, if this was indeed colorblind casting, and those guys were the best characters for the part, why they, why they all had to be black? Why couldn't? I mean, none of that. There's nothing in there that makes their situation required to be black. The only people that really that really need that are the ones that are like, th- like the Pikes, you know? They, yeah. The Russians and the Irish travelers are the only ones that like are specifically referenced to their lineage. Since Dalton's 
had, you know, quite a bit of hand in my analysis. What do you have to say about your things in analysis? Um, what I ended up landing on for my analysis, um, I almost did go formalist uh, along with Arthur. Um, and mine does lean slightly formalist, uh, but more the choice of character actions uh, throughout the screenplay. So a few months ago, uh, when we talked about Fight Club, I, I referenced an article by Yvonne Tasker, Dumb Movies for Dumb People, Masculinity, the Body, and the Voice in Contemporary Action Cinema. And uh, in that article, I she, she I referenced several parts of that article, but for tonight I want to touch on one portion of that in particular she, she mentions, which is that in action hero masculinity or in action film masculinity, one of the key components of that is the voice of not just the ability to overpower physically uh, or through acts of violence your opposers, but to outthink them and outsmart them and outwit them and to be wittier than they are. Now, while Snatch is by no means an action film um, at all, really, it certainly is very much a you know direct descendant of very much masculine films, of gangster films, of the action hero type masculinity, which you can see in westerns and gangster films and films that are not necessarily action films but portray a similar traditional masculinity. And what we see in Snatch is a really shocking small amount of violence considering it's about people who you know will willingly resort to violence to get things done the way we see people uh specifically men because there are not very many women in this film at all two exactly two, two exactly two doug the head's daughters um and a couple of topless women uh, at a strip club in a flashback and mixed mum so in a film made up mostly of men and criminal men at that, the way we see people getting one over on each other most of the time is not through acts of violence. There are a couple of physical confrontations uh, and a gun battle at the end, but mostly, other than the boxing, violence is not a part of these people's day-to-day. What is a part of their day-to-day is outwitting one another. Um, the Pikes, or um, which is not actually is a very archaic or regional slur for Irish travelers. It's not actually one you see very often. Um, if you look up Pikey, it will direct you to Irish travelers, but then it's not really listed in common usage. So I'm going to say Irish travelers because, in the unlikely event we have listeners that are Irish travelers, I don't want to offend them. Um, Brett, Mick, Mickey, and the Irish travelers uh, get one over on people by talking so fast and so incoherently that they have no idea what they're saying. And Turkish even makes mentions of the mention of this. The thing that makes gypsies such great negotiators is you can't understand them. And he, he wonders whether or not they're doing that on purpose. And I think absolutely they're doing that on purpose. The other really notable, uh, sequence of a man getting one over on other men is bullet tooth Tony with Saul Vince and Tyrone. Um, now, it would be very easy for Tony to kill all of them. As he points out, they've got replica written down the side of their guns, and he's got Desert Eagle .50 written down the side of his. But instead, he gives this very long monologue about how, you know, how they're dicks and balls and how they want to get a piece of the action because they caught a whiff of something. Uh, and he points out that he's the real dick in the room um, and that they should leave. And what he does is he asserts his power over them through dialogue, through voice, through speaking better, more eloquently. They're panicky. They're like, ah, ah, give us a stone. Ah, they're all panicky. And he is very mellow, very calm, and simply explains to them 
the facts as they are. We see this with Bricktop when he's explaining to Vince and Sol and Tyrone about pigs and how much pigs can eat. Now, while he is threatening them with physical violence, it is more about what he says than what he's, uh, how he says what he says than what he's actually saying. He's calm, he's direct, he's powerful. He takes the power from all of them and commands the room. We and again, it, time and time again, it comes up. And the, I think the three most notable characters uh, of this are Bricktop, Mickey, and um, Bullet. Uh, sorry, Bricktop, Bullet Tooth Tony, and Mickey are the three most notable characters who do this. Now, Turkish gets a lot of power because he's the narrator of the film, and he has the most power because his voice is basically on repeat, and he's constantly belittling to- Tommy. Uh, you know, uh, what are you going to protect yourself, Tommy? The Germans. He's constantly belittling him, and he, you know, does get one over on uh, Bricktop a couple of times and worms his way out, and that's how he gets out from underneath Bricktop several times. How he keeps himself from being murdered very early in the film is by outsmarting Bricktop and making Bricktop offers he can't refuse um, and trying to keep his way in his good graces. And that's how we see people get what they want throughout this film, or specifically how we see men get what they want throughout this film is through clever dialogue and I think that's something Guy Ritchie is very good at is writing clever dialogue uh, and it speaks to his interests as a filmmaker I think that people try to solve their issues without violence in his films that violence is always a last resort even for these criminal uh, folks that the only people who use violence as a first resort are the truly evil characters like Bricktop even the um, when Mickey and his fellow travelers do resort to violence it is part of a grander scheme that involves a lot of outthinking and a lot of wit and a lot of talking their way into the situations they want to be in. Um, even before the gun pl- blast, the real triumph over Bricktop is, um, you know, I'll roll the window down or I'll give you the boomstick. Um, you know, is that clever, witty one-liner before they show um, Bricktop the business end of that sawed-off shotgun. So I think that's something very interesting about this film and something that makes it kind of a standout among gangster films and something that makes all British gangster films stand out amongst other crime and gangster pictures is that dialogue is such a key component. Any, Not just Guy Ritchie, really all British crime films are kind of notable for their dialogue. I'm thinking specifically of films like Harry Brown and Sexy Beast and 44-inch Chest and all these other really kind of notable British uh, gangster picks. Um, so that's that's what I, I have for you today, dear listener. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What I want to talk about, uh, I'm going to crib quite a bit from an excellent article called Travels in Lad Land, uh, the British gangster film cycle, 1998 to 2001, written by Steve uh, Chibnall. It's available to you. I'm sure you can find it online, but it's also in the British Cinema Book, third edition, edited by Mr. Robert Murphy. And I imagine what he's going to say is all those films I just mentioned came out in about a three-year period. Correct. Yeah. And this is part of a cycle of films. And the article goes on to describe sort of the... uh, demographics of that cycle, also uh, questions of periodization, which is what you're dealing with when you're dealing with the film cycle. A film cycle is sort of a movement in filmmaking, usually uh, limited by a particular place, limited by specific times, and then there are thematic or generic, uh, by generic I mean genre, sort of uh, 
preoccupations of the cycle. So there are these gangster films that happen between 98 and 2001. That's not to say that these are the only British gangster films that happen. There's much reference to uh, two Michael Caine films, uh, Get Carter, and also The Italian Job. So Brits were making gangster films before and after the cycle. But there is a moment that happens in the British film industry in which there are a great many of these films made. Uh, they have two basic sorts and types within the gangster film. There are the light films and the heavy films. Snatch being uh, the primary example of a light film, which is not so much about character development, not so much about wrestling with the uh, nature of the human condition, but they're about being very postmodern and scads of fun. Uh, there is much discussion of the heavy influence of one Quentin Tarantino on these films in their style and also in their method of narrative storytelling. And I think that's all quite well-placed. Uh, the heavy film, the primary and uh, privileged example he gives is Gangster Number 1, which is a film I've not seen. I've never even heard of that. But um, it's it as seems to me in his description to be something of a British Godfather film. Okay. And uh, so, you know, much more of that heavy sort of thing. So if we were to juxtapose, juxtapose times and places in American cinema, we'd be setting The Godfather next to Pulp Fiction within a single cycle of filmmaking. Uh, now, he does go on to say, and these cycles do tend to have specific concerns. We are currently in a cycle right now dealing with zombie film, which um, deals mostly with uh, the nature of what means to make one human and also consumerism. Uh, and so the primary sort of uh, sociological concern of this cycle is, at the title alludes to it, Ladland, and the sort of new man that's coming up in the 90s, early 2000s, which is a more sensitive, uh, more thoughtful sort of manhood. And these films are uh, a way of pushing back against that. And to say, you know, a man's man is, again, the sort of... Uh, Honor among thieves sort of morality, not necessarily a uh, legal morality uh, because they are oriented mostly towards criminals and what have you. But there is a set of rules and a set of behaviors that are honorable and they're the honor that thieves have amongst themselves. And that seems, again, to be the uh, primary orientation of the film. And that if you are a feminine man, if you are, again, the new man, you're really not that masculine sort of man. And I think the greatest place in which we see that, and Dalton mentioned this, is the scene about the replica guns versus the Desert Eagle 5-0, in which uh, we have literally men shooting blanks versus men, uh, a man, rather, who's quite potent in his ability to shooting fire the shot. very potent uh, caliber of pistol. And, uh, and of course, I think the character of Tony the Tooth is, is just like Turkish, just like several other characters in the film. It is a potent sort of manhood, a, a real sort of British man's man uh, set there in London's South End. And that seems, again, to be sort of the primary concerns of the cycle itself. Now, I want to take a moment to step aside from this particular British gangster film cycle and want to talk about film cycles more generally and broadly in terms of an avenue into film studies. Many of us, when we start getting serious about film, we like a movie very, very much, and we realize that film has a director. And that director may have a style and may have a particular voice, and we sort of begin to get involved in auteurism, whether we know that word or not, and we begin to chase films down by a particular director be it David Fincher, be it Edgar Wright, who's already been mentioned uh, in this uh, particular podcast, and also we have a series of podcasts 
uh, dealing with a couple of his films in the Cornetto trilogy. And uh, many times we find our way into film studies. I found my way into film studies by finding a director I liked and then chasing as many of the films as I could, sort of being a completist in that way. But another way that's very interesting to find uh, your way into film and to find a certain type of film and begin to think about what film may mean and different variations on theme is through the cycle. The cycle, again, is typically generic. It's typically uh, located within a national cinema, be it American cinema, British cinema, um, various and sundry other international cinemas that you might find. And there's, a, a very, again, a very limited time period. One of those, for me personally, has been film noir, which is generally uh, dated between about 1941 and 1943 to about 1958. Well, I uh, speaking from my own experience as well, Dustin, I, that's how I, more than auteurs, which is something that occurred to me later, how I started to get into film analysis was chasing these cycles of film, the, uh, the classic action sci-fi films, which we've mentioned several times, are things that I love. Aliens and Terminator 2 Judgment Day, uh, but as well as American crime films. Um, the Boondock Saints, which we mentioned on that show, was one of my favorites growing up and now something I don't have much love for, uh, but also The Godfather and Scarface. and So yeah, those cycles of film, are I think, can be very powerful when you're, you're growing as someone who loves film. Absolutely. And I, I think it's really a, a, a fruitful and helpful way to think about film. It's a way of sort of busting a rut. Uh, for you if you are just chasing a director or, again, if you're just chasing a genre. What I want to say in terms of analysis about this particular film, Snatch, is that one way to look at it is I don't really want to break down and do a whole lot of particular uh, specific readings of the film as much as I want to say you can put it in a grouping and then pursue that grouping of these films from 98 to 2001 and then from there chase out directors chase out other themes if you like the gangster film there's several gangster cycles we've already mentioned the 70 cycle but there's a great 30 cycle of gangster films let's not forget Scarface is a remake that's a James Cagney movie from what 34 is that accurate, I Arthur? think that's right Oh, you said Arthur. Well, well Dalton too. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it's. I know it's mid 30s. Yeah, and so, and that's the whole pre-code period when it comes to Hollywood. When you it, could get away with anything, and it becomes very interesting in sort of different kinds of ways. And so, what I want to say again in terms of analysis is not so much particular things about Snatch as much as guys. There's opportunities for analysis that I think many of our listeners may be missing out on. And uh, I want to encourage you to begin to pursue those other opportunities as you find them, as your interests are piqued. But thank you so much, very much, dear co-host, for that spot-on analysis of the film Snatch. Let's move on to our verdict period of the show when we say, does this film belong on the shelf or does it belong in the trash? And uh, depending on our answers, what else or instead should the dear listener be watching? I ask you first, Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what say you? Um, it's not required viewing. It's not trash. It's good. Um, it is, if you like gangster movies, if you like British comedies, watch it. You'll love it. You'll love it to pieces. But it is definitely not required viewing. I'd say stream it. It's on Netflix. Super easy to get a hold of. Um, in terms of my, um, else's, I would recommend, uh, well, I have a whole list and I am, I'm, I'm afraid we're all going to pick the same films. 
Um, but I'll just try and be brief. I recommend Lockstock, of course, Guy Ritchie. It's almost, isn't it almost the same film? I haven't yeah, seen Lockstock. Lo- Lockstock in and a Two cool Smoking minute. Barrels and Snatch are essentially the same film. Right. Um, that, as well with The Usual Suspects, another American yeah. gangster type movie that has a little Absolutely. bit of fun plot subversion at the end. Mm-hmm. And um, then I would also recommend Fight Club if you want to see more fighting Brad Pitt. More beautiful jacked Brad Pitt. Yeah. yeah. I have to say, like, at first, back in the olden days, I preferred Brad Pitt's physique in Snatch, but now I'm I'm definitely more on to where he is in Fight Club. Well, he's, much more, he's much more baby oil. He was oil. very lean. He's, in, he's much in, more baby oil covered in Fight Club. Yes, that too. Um, so much shinier. Right. And for my final recommendation, I would suggest you check you check out Hotline Miami, which I think is a fun yeah. gangster romp that has a bitchin' soundtrack, which is, um, I think there are, a f- there are a few films that usually, that use this score in a really driving manner, and I think Hotline Miami would fa- falls pretty lockstep with Snatch in terms of an ultra-violent piece of work that uses the soundtrack to full... Uh, capabilities absolutely well i'm gonna hand it off to another one of you what about you mr arthur gordon i'm gonna agree with you ox i don't think you go out and pick this one up uh, but certainly stream it watch it uh it's available on all three major streaming uh mediums hulu amazon and netflix so it is readily available if you subscribe to any of those or if you can't you could also put it on your friend's shelf if you need to and just borrow it when you would like I think it is a fun movie. I love the rawness here. Uh, it's it's really fun. Uh, it's a good time to be had. Uh, else, uh, you watch a more recent uh, Guy Ritchie film. Uh, Alex alluded to Lockstock. I say you watch Rock and Roll. With Absolutely. This. I think uh, that's one of my uh, recommends as well, Arthur. Also, I say you go watch uh, Matthew Vaughn's Layer Cake starring Daniel Craig, which won him his role as Bond. Mm. It's a phenomenal uh, gangster film. It's just really, really solid. Uh, also, just for editing, I, I alluded to it earlier, but you you watch Shaun of the Dead and you watch Hot Fuzz with this uh, because they crib the editing here uh, so well, and it is it is so much fun to watch those. Also, uh, as Dustin alluded to, you watch Ocean's Eleven because this is the British Ocean's Eleven. And that's what I've got for you uh, as far as Elsa's go. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you, Mr. Dalton Stewart, Shelver Trash, Else, or instead? I, I, I'm in uh, lockstep, as Alex said, with my co-hosts here. I stream it. I mean, it's it's not good. It, I mean, it's good. It's not great, rather, I should say. There are better gangster movies. There's funnier movies. There's better Guy Ritchie movies. Uh, yeah, if you're going to put something on your shelf from Guy Ritchie, I say put Rock and Roll on your shelf because it's not streaming everywhere, and it's honestly quite a bit better. Um as good as uh, Jason Statham is at Guy Ritchie's dialogue, um, Jason Statham not known for being the best actor in the world, but he's very good in Guy Ritchie's films. I think Gerard Butler's a little bit better, and he's the lead in Rock and Roller. Mm-hmm. It's also got Tony Kebbell and um, Mark Strong and uh, Ludacris and Jeremy Piven. I mean, it's got a great cast. I mean, it has a better cast, and the, yeah. acti- the, the caliber of the acting in Rock and Roller is... So good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you're going to put a Guy Ritchie movie on your shelf, that's the one to put on. Um, I would also recommend, and I actually double featured uh, Snatch with a uh, documentary called Knuckle about Irish uh, traveler bare knuckle boxing. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, this guy whose name I can't remember, it's actually funded by the Irish Film Board. Uh, and this director followed this family of Irish travelers for over 10 years. Um, and these families settled their disputes in bare knuckle boxing matches and 
you start to realize as the film goes on, this isn't really about anything. And the director even mentions that. He goes, I realized I was just doing this because it was exciting. I, I realized like I had to stop filming these guys because I was just filming it because of the catharsis of seeing this violence. And it's a very interesting documentary. It really is. Um, so I would, you know, before you watch Snatch, you should check out Knuckle, definitely. I mean, watch Snatch if you've got time to kill, but it's definitely not essential viewing. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I am probably going to be the dissenter and say this is pretty disposable. I mean, I don't want my Netflix subscription money back. You know, yeah, it's it's fun, <laughs> it's fun, but yeah, it's disposable. Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I, I I probably would have felt vaguely cheated if I'd paid you know seven dollars to go see it in a the theater. Mm-hmm. But so yeah, I guess as close as that gets to trash, I, I would say that. Uh, what else you should watch if you like boxing movies that are gangster oriented? You should check out Stanley Kubrick's. Um, Killer's Kiss, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Also, Robert De- Robert De Niro starring in Martin Scorsese's Raging Bull. Ooh, yeah. Because fun times uh, are going to be had there uh, about that particular film. Also, in terms of cycles, and if you're just thinking you want to get into another cycle or two, I cannot do any better than direct you to The Big Sleep, which I think is a similarly labyrinthine plot. Uh, in fact, Howard Hawks was once asked what, what happens in the movie, and he didn't know. Howard Hawks being the director. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's funny all by itself. And then I want to say, see Horror of Dracula, starring the great Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing. Which and, has one of the best vampire melts ever. Yes, and if you can find on YouTube the Japanese edit where it's much more graphic and there's much more Morticia's clay that's pulled off the face of one Christopher Lee, oh, it's so good. it would make your day. Fucking and, backs him into the sunlight with uh, candlesticks as a cross. It's so cool. And then, like, does this amazing athletic jump for already old Peter Cushing. Yeah. You he, know, like a badass, he jumps. And uh, I think you would have a good time with that. And again, I just want to expand your film knowledge, dear listener. And I hope, dear listener, having listened to our shelves and trashes, else's or instead's, the syllabus has expanded for you all. But enough of this foolishness. Let's talk about social media and how the conversation can continue through that magical means that we all know. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you know anything about social media and ways in which the conversation can continue? Uh, you can find us on Facebook.com forward slash Good Trash Genrecast, one word. Uh, over on the Facey Facebook, uh, we got some positive reaction to our uh, new page graphic uh, recently posted by myself. Um, Randall Bays put a heart emoji on there, and Caleb Masters said it was epic. Uh, we also had several likes on it, so that's fun. Um, then you could also find us on Google Plus uh, or email us goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, over on Google Plus, uh, username the Quick Flick Critic. Uh, had this to say about uh, Spring Breakers, which we did last week. Quote, right, righteous rapping, y'all. Here's my two cents. If you think that the in-yo-face opening images of Spring Breakers depict base debauchery, you ain't seen nothing till you get to the conclusion of this deeply unsettling flick. Well, the movie manages to hold interest, and the tragic anti-hero character of Alien is a demented piece of whacked-out work to behold by James Franco. Here are the words that spring to mind as you watch Spring Breakers. Directionless, desensitized, depraved, soulless, and morally dead. But hey, cheer up, guys. The four foxy friends are perpetually scantily clad and scorched hotter than the South Florida sun. Yet one is left to ponder how it is that ex-Justin Bieber squeeze Selena Gomez plays a college chick despite looking like she's about 14. (laughs) Nice touch with the JB poster adorning a wall of her character's dorm room in that one scene. Uh, For more of my reviews, you can check out uh, Categorized Bizarre. Please visit thequickflickcritic.blogspot.com. There you go, the quick flick critic at blogspot.com. Don't get used to us pimping your shit, listener.
I do I do have to say that is probably the single best written comment we've ever gotten that was in fabulous. the history of our yeah, show. Yeah, that alliteration Quick, is on, like, on point. Well done. And that's all I've got coming in from our social mediums uh, this week. So, you know, guys, talk to us. We like that kind of stuff. But thanks for the feedback. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything else about social media means by which a conversation might be held? You know, Dustin, Twitter users have drive and clarity of vision. They're not clever. You thought you smelled retweets and you want a piece of the action. And you brought along your two mincy followers along for a good time. But you've got your parties muddled. There are no retweets here. Just a dose that'll make you wish you were born a woman. Like a Twitter user. You're having second thoughts. You're shriveling. And your two followers are shriveling with you. And the fact that you've got the generic egg as your avatar. And I've got a picture of myself pointing at a no trespassing sign as my Twitter avatar should precipitate your followers shrinking along with your presence. Now, fuck off. Ladies and gentlemen, you can find the Good Trash Genre Cast on Twitter at good underscore trash. Well, I shriveled a bit hearing all of that. Do you have any feedback coming in from the Twitter? I do. Uh, Brigham Cole wrote in uh, in response to our game last week as we played Spring Breakers. Uh, What films would you want to have on repeat? Uh, And he wrote in and said his top three films on repeat uh, are all films that we've covered on the Good Trash Genre cast. And he said Office Space, Die Hard, and The Big Lebowski. Three of our very early shows. And if you're going to listen to any of those listeners, just listen to the Die Hard one. Those other two are a bit of a a clusterfuck, to be perfectly (laughs) honest. We also had uh, Caleb Masters writing in. Caleb Masters is a friend of the show, so I will allow him to pimp his stuff on our Twitter and said, spring break, spring break, spring break forever. And he said, my less refined 2013 analysis and link to his um, uh, calebmasters.net where he writes about film. Uh, I did retweet that link because it was a pretty good piece and I I really enjoy reading Caleb's writings on film. Uh, a lot of retweets and a lot of favorites, but as far as written feedback, that's uh, about all this week. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dolan Stewart. Of course, we can take your comments at iTunes, also at Podbean, and finally at Stitcher Internet Radio. And we'd love to see that stuff there. And of course, you can email us, as Arthur has already mentioned, and uh, give us lengthier commentary from that location. Don't forget, listener, those subscribes, ratings, and reviews over at iTunes are invaluable to us. We really appreciate it when you do that. Well, enough of this talking about how awesome we are. It's time to play the game. Time to play the game. This week's game is our favorite criminals slash gangsters. That's right. Favorite criminals slash gangsters and film brought to you by Snatch. Snatch. Well, let's get this party started. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what are your favorite criminals slash gangsters? I'll rattle these off rather quickly. Uh, I'm going to say... Uh, first, um, just because it's a wonderful turn, and I've already mentioned the movie, uh, but it is Dumbledore Michael Gambon as Eddie Temple in Layer Cake. He is mm-hmm. cruel, evil, merciless, and it is a lot of fun considering we know him best as Dumbledore. Dumbledore plays a bad motherfucker in this movie. <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah. Uh, next, bringing it back to America because that's what we do. This is America and land of the free, home of the brave, and all that good junk. <laughs> But you, uh, it's it's Jeremy Renner as James Coughlin in The Town. And finally, this one's maybe a bit of a cheat because he's more of a, a uh, getaway driver than he is anything. But it is Ryan Gosling as the driver in Drive. Yay. A great performance, a great movie, and I can never not talk about that movie. So here we are. 
Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? Who are your favorite criminals slash gangsters? Well, I've already mentioned rock and roll several times tonight, but I do have to give a shout-out to Gerard Butler as 1-2, Tom Hardy as Handsome Bob, and Idris Elba as Mumbles as the Wild Bunch. I liked rock and rollers so much in high school that I started referring to my group of uh, friends as the Wild Bunch. That's how much I like rock and roll. Um, I think it's so much fun and is easily Guy Ritchie's best gangster film, in my opinion. Um, and they're all spot on in that movie, and you should really check that out. Uh, I also want to point out another Idris Elba performance as Stringer Bell on The Wire, um, one of my favorite gangsters of all time. Um, last but not least, I want to mention the Jonathan Glazer picture, Sexy Beast. Jonathan Glazer, who went on to do 2013's Under the Skin. Um, a much more conventional film, Sexy Beast, uh, but still a very much a subversion of the gangster genre. And the gangster in particular is Sir Ben Kingsley as Don Logan, the very foul-mouthed Don Logan. Uh, it features Ray Winstone, uh, Sir Ben Kingsley, as already mentioned, and Ian McShane. Um, and it's so good. It's really almost a chamber piece in a lot of ways. Most of it takes place at Ray Winstone's house. Um, but if you have not caught up with Sexy Beast, I, I strongly recommend that, if, if only for Ben Kingsley's performance, which is worth the price of admission alone. And last but not least, the godfather, Michael Corleone. I thought somebody needed to say it. Oh, I had to, because Al Pacino is so fucking good in that movie, uh, in the first Godfather and this in Godfather. prior too. to the hoo this is Yeah, this is early. This is not hoo-ah, hoo-ah. Uh, she's got a great ass. This is early subdued Al Pacino, um, really working, uh, just showing a mastercraft level of acting. If you've ever wondered why people sing Al Pacino's praises, if you've only seen his work like 95 and onward, you need to see The Godfather. Obviously, you should watch The Godfather because it's one of the greatest films ever made. Um, but Al Pacino is so good in it. Um, if you love the episode towards the end of the first half of season five of Breaking Bad where Walter White orchestrates the demise of all of his enemies. It's very much an homage to the end of The Godfather um, as um, Michael Corleone gets his son baptized, and it is amazing. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what are your picks? Well, I'm going to go a little atypical for my first pick. I'm going to say one of my favorite criminals – Turned anti-heroes is Han Solo from the Star Wars trilogy. Hell yeah. Um, Over the weekend, uh, Dalton and I, with a bunch of friends, we were discussing um, the how the recut of the versions that Lucas does changes um, Han Solo's arc. And so I was really thinking about how he really is this great criminal that ended up having a heart of gold by the end of all of the all of the content in star wars which is a lot um another uh, one of my picks is um uh, weevil navarro who is played by francis capra in veronica mars he uh he's the leader of the local biker gang oh um, yeah another anti-hero with a heart of gold that's actually all of my picks they're all criminals that have a heart of gold maybe i just have a soft spot for that kind of she wants to fix them yeah oh oh. now you guys are all gonna analyze me thanks a lot (laughs) i can change him i now look for a string of broken relationships go on okay uh so that one's a a, that's a really forefront of my mind type and we've also discussed veronica mars Mars on on the show and then last but certainly not least is one of my favorite um 
current shows on TV, Better Call Saul, um, or actually Breaking Bad, Bob Odenkirk's uh, character, Saul Goodman, not Jimmy McGill in Better Call Saul, but um, Saul Goodman in Breaking Bad. He's more of the criminal type antihero, whereas... He's, um, he's, he's as much criminal as he is lawyer. Yes, in in the in Breaking Bad certainly. Whereas it's he's still getting there in Better Call Saul. He is definitely not there or even close to being there yet. I caught up with that all Mike Ermintrout episode of Better Call Saul, by the way. Oh, so good, so good. Yeah, uh, we're that's actually the series um, finale is tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, the season season finale. finale. So, season finale. Season finale is tomorrow. So, um, those would be my three picks. What about you, Dustin? Well, um, what I want to say is I would echo Michael Corleone because it's one of my favorite, favorite portrayals ever on screen. Yes, um, it is. Dustin, I'm sorry. I know I saw The Godfather Part 2. Oh, man. It's okay. It's sitting right there. You can yeah, see it from I, where I, I can sitting. see it now. Yeah. Um, I've had it for two be, years probably. Because then you'll see um, Robert De Niro slash Marlon Brando. Um, not in Godfather Part Two because Brando's not in Part Two. Yeah. As uh, Vito Corleone. Yeah. Which is another huge favorite of mine. I got through the first half of the film and was like, "I'll I'll watch the second disc next weekend." Never did. So Never now happened. I have to start all over. It, it's so brilliant. It's so much fun. I also love Jimmy Cagney as the original Scarface. I think it's totally worth your time. It's totally a uh, film worth uh, seeing. Pacino is more the crazy Pacino when we get to uh, De Palma Scarface, and uh, so I like it less. But I don't dislike it. <laughs> Correct. And uh, so th- that would be a couple recommends of mine. I- I'm also going to go full out criminal, and I'm just going to say uh, one Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter. And uh, that's just a criminal whose depiction is so sexy, and he's not sexual at no. all. No. See also Mads Mickelson as Hannibal yeah, on the Hannibal Have Gino you seen series. any of that yes. series? Do you yeah. like it? Oh, the the three it. of us are huge fans of that show. Oh, okay. Or, or do you watch Hannibal, Alex? I don't. I yeah, don't, it's too gory know. for you. I don't think it's. I've tried it's, reading the Wikipedia network and, it, gore. and it makes me sad. <laughs> it's. It is easily the most violent show on network television. I know. I couldn't believe it was on NBC after. I don't know if my imagination is just that much worse than like. That. No, it's not. Okay, because no. I'm just like. I mean, it's they all did v- the the what was it, the necktie. The- it's all very clean and clinical, um, but it is extremely violent. It's all post mortem, but it's very, very graphic. It's also a, a TV series that disturbingly makes one consider cannibalism as a possible. And it's option. also a delectable mm-hmm. yeah. cooking program. Yes, it really <laughs> is. I could watch Mads Mikkelsen cook for days. Bam. Finally, uh, with little little screen time altogether, but I gotta say, Ving Rhames is one Marcellus Wallace is an awesome gangster, and I love everything about him, and the strangely uh, hidden mark on the back of his neck, which I expect is the mark of the beast, but... Um, it's actually, Ving Rhames had recently had a skin tag removed. But I'm gonna go with the mark of the beast, because it makes me happier, because I believe 666 is also the code of the... Uh, it is briefcase holding Elvis's golden suit and so those are my recommends dear listener we'd love to hear yours you can do that via those magical means of social media already mentioned so far on the show but let's conclude the show as we always do with what's got us fired up this week in pop culture Miss 
Alexander Bohannon. What's got you fired up? Well, Arthur and I are fired up probably about the same thing. WrestleMania 32. Did you watch? 31. 31. Oh, shit. I was looking for, sorry, I was looking for WrestleMania 32 tickets because it's going to be in Dallas. I don't think um, they've gone on sale yet. No, they haven't. I heard it's November. <laughs> no, it's it's going to be so fun. Anyway, yeah. um, that ending was incredible yeah oh my gosh my i had a we went up to tulsa to watch it with friends we had a we had a birthday party play with nerf guns and then we watched wrestlemania and it surpassed everyone's intentions matt was like this is probably gonna be crappy so we're just gonna put it on the background um but i could only i was only disappointed for maybe three of the matches and they're basically the old fart matches and the battle royale and i mean maybe the john cena match i guess but i mean John Cena, you know, um, that one, that's okay. But the way they ended it was absolutely perfect. I, um, could, I could watch Brock Lesnar kill people for days. Yes. Brock Lesnar is like a human Godzilla and is the greatest thing in the world. I could just watch him like suplex anything. Yeah. Suplex city, bitches. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then um, I finally, I caught up, I watched Raw from the day after. I usually don't watch a lot of the main stage stuff. But I did this time because I've heard that the Raw after WrestleMania is some of the best uh, you'll ever watch. And I did. And, oh, my gosh, now that was crazy. Brock Lesnar was suplexing civilians because he was mad because he couldn't get a rematch with the guy that defeated him at WrestleMania by uh, technicality. Yeah, it was really, really good. Super fun. Um so that's what's got me fired up. And then one more thing actually also related to wrestling is um, what we watched before WrestleMania um, as a primer to some of the backstory about staying in Triple H and all of the old farts, mm, I guess. I know what you're um, about to say. Yep, wrestling isn't wrestling, right? Yeah, um, a really kind of interesting – I forget the guy's name. He's vaguely internet famous, but I think he's also a filmmaker. Oh, the guy that wrote Chronicle, right? Oh, shit. Is that him? Yeah. Are you talking about the thing where they do the – the Triple H thing with the girls? Yes. Yeah, with yeah, Chloe, yeah. With Chloe Dykstra. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's the guy that wrote Chronicle. Oh, my gosh. Really? So, yeah. Uh, Alex, the guy that wrote Chronicle. Go ahead. He, yeah. He... Um, so, the guy that wrote Chronicle, as I learned, basically does a meta-analysis, of like 20, 25-minute analysis of what has happened with Triple H specifically, his storyline to get him to where we are. But, show, but uses Triple currently. H to kind of explain how wrestling evolved from what it was in the early '80s to what it is now. Yeah, exactly. And one of the, it, and it's hilarious in his retelling. It's kind of like drunk history. Yes, in that there's somebody telling similar. you that, and then there's a reenactment of what is being told to you. And it, all the wrestlers are played by Chloe Dykstra and other famous, internet famous ladies, uh, famous adorable women. And I would say that if you aren't into wrestling, this actually. This is, I think this would be on my must-watch to be friends with me list, because this is, I mean, it's only... It's less than half an hour. Less than half an hour, definitely less than that last Raw episode, which was really long. Um, And it's totally worth your time, because it really explains why wrestling kind of kind of matters in like a cultural context, Mm -hmm. and I might have gotten into it a lot earlier than I had if I had seen it. Well, I don't know if it was out before you know, a few months ago, but if I had seen it earlier in my adult life, I might've gotten into wrestling a lot earlier. And that's about, um, besides that and getting caught up on better call Saul, I'm still a little behind, but, um, that's about it for pop cultural things that got me excited. Thank you very much. Miss Alexandra Bohannon, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you in pop culture fired up A lot of things. So I'm going to be 
as brief as I can about each one. Uh, on this most recent episode of The Flash, Mark Hamill uh, was on it. Hey, re- Reprising his role as the trickster from the 90s Flash television series. Um, there's a great Star Wars reference. Uh, Hamill is looking good. You could tell that all that uh, training he had to do to get back in shape for Star Wars Episode Seven really paid off. It's a really fun episode, and if you're into Flash, now's the time to get caught up if you're behind because that episode's a lot of fun, and Mark Hamill, as always, is beautiful. I uh, had the opportunity to watch the HBO documentary Going Clear, yeah. uh, Scientology and the Prison of Belief. Man, fascinating stuff. Really, really thought-provoking and interesting expose. Uh, it's not about, you know, much is made of the alien stuff that Scientologists, uh, that L. Ron Hubbard's handwritten notes reveal to Scientologists who've paid the, much, the most money. It doesn't really care about that. It mentions it. It's more interested in Ron Hubbard as a person and more interested in how Scientology is run. Um, it's very interesting, and I really think you should check it out if you've got the time to do so. I was able to see a short film on Vimeo called The Leviathan. Now, this is not the Russian film Leviathan that came out last year, nor is it the documentary about fishing boats, Leviathan from a few years ago. This Leviathan is a with the definite article, the. the. The Leviathan. Yeah, I saw that, what you sent to us in that yeah, text I, message. Yeah, I sent you guys that link. It was directed by uh, an Irish filmmaker who's done a few things um, and written by James Ools, who wrote the um, screenplay for Fight Club. Um, it has since then been greenlit for a full-length motion picture directed by this guy and written by James Wills, uh, and is essentially about uh, space whaling, uh, more or less. It's it's about a, a future in which we have to go whaling uh, f- giant space oddities uh, for our fuel for intergalactic travel. It's a really very short uh, proof of concept, essentially, but I, I think you should check it out. I retweeted the link uh uh, a while back. I might post that again. That is what I am fired about this week in popular cultures. Well, I want to mention just a couple of rewatches, uh, one of which is Steel Magnolias. I will keep my man <laughs> wait, 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 wait. That movie You're is... fired up about Steel Magnolias. Man, that movie never... is so good. I, uh, no, you, I've, I've seen, seen it before. I've okay. seen it, but I mean, I'm just never I was talking to Dustin. to hear Fire Up. It's so good. It is so good. It's a great movie. And I, I, I love it. You know you know for a fact that one Tom Skerritt is a gentleman because he does take the dishes out of the sink before he pees in it. And uh, it's just – it's fabulous. I just I – I forgot how much I love that movie. Uh, I double-billed Snatch with One Gone in 60 Seconds, which uh, features Tony the Tooth as a nearly wordless character called Sphinx. And uh, there is another scene in which a dog has swallowed things that perhaps a dog should not have. And it's of the same year. I don't know what's 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 in the Kool-Aid at that point. Vinny Jones and dogs, man. It, it was fun. It's good stuff. He also delivers uh, only a, one bit of dialogue in a monologue about uh, the nobility of suffering. And it is fantastic at the end of that film. Thank you very much, dear co-host, for all of that fired up in this. Next week's film is... Arthur's pick. Arthur, would you like to say anything about what your pick would be for our potpourri month? Yes, next week I, I, I went back and forth on what I wanted to choose and I just had no clue. But next week I'm asking a great task of our co-hosts here because next week I expect negative reaction. Oh no. And I want you to keep an open mind. Alright. But next week we're going to try to retcon something. Oh shit. In honor of Netflix's newest series... We're going to find out what it takes to make a man without fear as we watch not just Daredevil, but we watch Daredevil 
the director's cut with 30 additional minutes bumped up to the R rating and removing the romantic storyline featuring Jennifer Garner. Oh my, that's so wait, it's a different movie now. Essentially, yes. Everything I've heard is that everything I've heard is that it's a totally different movie. It's hokey. It's cheesy. But we're going to try to give credence to one of the most critically panned superhero films of all time when we watch Daredevil. Well, thanks, Arthur. Ben Affleck. Affleck. Show us what you got. Well, there you go, dear listener. You now have an extended syllabus as to what we're going to be looking at next week. We encourage you very much to just take a look at a film, even when it's sort of fluffy like Snatch, probably like Daredevil as well, and uh, begin to think about how those conversations can broaden your conversation and understanding of the world around us and also just your love of this wonderful medium that we call film. So take a look at that. Have a good time with it, and we will see you next time. Now when I was a little boy At the age of five I had something in my bucket Keeps a lot of folks alive Now I'm a man Of a 21 You know big bird We can have a lot of fun I'm a man
Twizzist.